You know, the church gets blamed for a lot of things. You know, we, our culture, our society will oftentimes, you know, look to the church and blame us or blame it for a variety of different things. And that's not anything different than has happened since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. The ancient Romans blamed the Christians for various things that were problems in their society. Christians have been blamed for political turmoil and violence and other things throughout the Middle Ages, for the Inquisition, the intolerance of uh, the church against heresy and those kinds of things, and all the way up until the 21st century when the church is oftentimes blamed for the problem of guilt. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to discuss about guilt, what it is and where it comes from, and what the Bible says about guilt. I know uh, Phil always wants to start off the sermon with a joke, and I'm not very good at finding jokes or necessarily telling jokes. I think I'm funny sometimes, but there's a difference between the two. And so I found this joke, and the background of it is you have to know that one of the great stereotypes in our culture and our society is, uh, and you see it on TV, a lot of comedians uh, use this stereotype, you see it a lot of uh, sitcoms, and that's the stereotype of the Jewish mother. Jewish mothers are well known for their ability to instill guilt in their children. And so that's the background of this joke. There was a Jewish son called up his mother. Said, Mom, how are you doing? Um, Everything going okay with you? And Mom answers, well, things aren't going very well. I haven't eaten in 38 days. And so his son's like, goodness, what's what's the problem? Are you not well? Have Have you called a doctor? Is there something that needs to be done? And mom says, no, it's not that. I, I just didn't want to have my mouth full of food when you called. <laughs> now, if that's the highlight of the sermon, we're in big trouble. So. There is this problem that we have about guilt. Now, the world looks at it as in a problem in a different way than than the church does. And they would say that guilt is something to, to get rid of. You know, it's something we need to avoid. We need to try to um, get rid of it in some way. The internet is full of articles, uh, blogs, uh, all sorts of different theories and ideas about guilt, especially on uh, sites having to do with psychology. It's called a number of things. These are just some of the things I came up with. An unpleasant emotion. In some cases, a necessary evil. And as one crazy internet psychologist called it, the worst experience known to humans. And I think some of this comes from a a confusion sometimes about the difference between guilt and shame. Sometimes... You know, shame can be misunderstood for guilt. Guilt is an awareness, if you will. It's more than an emotion, although that's part of it. 
there's an emotion, but there's also this awareness. There's, it's, it's kind of an inner state within us where we recognize that we have failed to live up to or to believe in our particular standard behavior. Now, there are a lot of different standards out there. The Word of God is a standard of behavior. Culture, the society establishes certain standards for behavior. Throughout different cultures and different times in history, there have been different beliefs and ideas about what is right and wrong. But that's what guilt is. It's an understanding and awareness that I have failed in that way. Shame, however, is that sense of failure that we have before the eyes of other people. That we, we feel bad because others are looking at us a certain way. Well, where does this guilt come from? Where is it developed? If you ask evolutionists, they would say that Guilt evolved from a fear of consequences or a fear of punishment. My understanding of it is this, that at one time a a caveman tried to steal food from another caveman and got clubbed upside the head with a big stick. And so he begins to associate then stealing the consequences and so now somehow it turns into guilt. The problem is that there is a definite difference between a fear of consequences, a fear of punishment, and what we understand to be guilt. They're two distinct kinds of feelings. Think about this. Have you ever experienced this, where you are tempted to do something, and you know that there is a 100% chance that you will not get caught. There's absolutely no way that anybody's going to know about this except for you. And yet, still feel that pang of guilt. It still speaks to you, that voice in your head that says that's wrong, regardless of whether or not there is going to be a consequence or a punishment. That pesky feeling that we get is always there. Some believe that guilt is a product of culture. That societies and cultures establish uh, rules and then they instill guilt as a way of social control. They want to make sure that uh, everybody toes the line. The belief is that you know if a culture changes and evolves to a point eventually that guilt will be diminished. Guilt will disappear. But unfortunately, cultures have changed over time, changed in many ways and in many points, and yet this nagging problem of guilt still remains. Guilt is not, as it's worded at some points, a maladaptive byproduct of the evolution of rationality, Guilt, instead, points to that moral compass that exists within each one of us. It's part of our psychological makeup. And it points us 
directly to a creator. To believe that a moral compass, that my conscience, that my understanding, that my guilty feelings in some way evolved from a complex uh, set of chemical processes and biological processes over millions of years takes more ridiculous faith to believe in than to believe in a creator. It's like believing in the tooth fairy as opposed to believing in a God who has created it within us. One uh, liberal progressive psychologist that I read on the internet made this statement. I look forward to the day when people can have free sex and not feel guilty about it. Now that's the one that we always come back to. It seems like our culture always uh, addresses that particular issue. But I think about, well, what, you know, what if you said the same thing about other things? I look forward to the day when people can steal and not feel guilty about it. Or look forward to the day when someone can commit murder and not feel guilty about it. Well, in any of those instances, this psychologist needs to understand that that is not going to happen. We are not going to get to a point where we do not feel that pang of guilt. The conscience of man is created within each of us to help us understand when I have violated God's law. And it's there even in those who do not have an understanding of God's law. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes uh, to us and he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's us, everybody outside of the Jewish faith, faith, who do not have this law that we would see in the Old Testament, When they do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. The conscience can do both. It can accuse us, obviously, when we're guilty, but it can also defend us when we maybe are accused by someone else when, there is some, you know, when we run into that problem of, of irrational kinds of guilt. Back in Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote a, a long list of sins that God had given, over, given the people over to because they failed to, to recognize his sovereignty. And then in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, notice what it says. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Notice what it says at the beginning. Although they know God's righteous decree. This understanding of God's law, understanding of right and wrong, this moral compass that we have, exists in everyone. Now, I believe, and and this is in the realm of opinion, as Phil would say, and I don't know that I could 
I don't know how you would go about proving this anyway, but I honestly believe that a lot of people try to hide their guilt and then are notoriously false when they deny that they feel bad for their actions. That somewhere in each person, and I don't care how, um, how badly a person has behaved, I don't care what that person has done, Ted Bundy, it is said, uh, after the murders of uh, 20-some young women, that he did not feel guilty for what he did. And I refuse to believe that. I believe at one point maybe Ted Bundy no longer felt any kind of remorse, no longer felt any kind of sadness. But at some point, especially early on in his criminal career, that there was some place within Ted Bundy where he realized and was aware that he was doing what was wrong. We talk about psychopathic behavior. And I think it's possible for a person's conscience to be, to be seared to the point where, you know, they no longer feel badly for their sin. But there is a recognition, there is an awareness that it is there. And that's part of this aspect of guilt. Not just the emotion, but the awareness as well. What do I base that on? Well, in part, I go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We have Adam and Eve. We understand you know, the, the story of the fall. We understand um, how they were tempted and what happened. And what is it that they did immediately upon recognizing their sin? When they understood that they were guilty, the first thing they did was to hide from God. They hid. They didn't want anybody to, re- to know that they understood their guilt, especially God. And the second thing that they did was they blamed somebody else. Just two ways in which the world tries to deal with this problem of guilt. And I believe that we need to understand them and then recognize what the Bible says about our response to guilt. One of the first ways, you know, if you read uh, various things, you'll find that when people uh, feel guilt, they experience that, if it's for something that's, you know, legitimate, something that they did, then the recommendation is to apologize. Okay? You should apologize. Which I think is true. You know, I mean, that's, you know, a worldly response, but I think it's a valid one. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul is writing to uh, the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth had problems, to say the least. They struggled with sin, struggled with how to deal with it within the church, struggled with it, how, to, you know, how it affected their relationships with one another. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to read a longer passage here in just a minute, but I just want to look at verse 9. Paul says to them, he, he says, Now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Being sorry and apologizing for something is not going to take care of 
that guilt problem. It might help. It might make you feel better for, in the moment. But ultimately, that's not enough. Another thing that the world would say to do is, well, you should, you know, uh, avoid it. Avoid guilt by, you know, not doing those things that make you feel guilty. Reduce it through your own conscious effort. Try harder, would what the world would say. And even for the Christian, this is difficult. To just by our own power and by our own will somehow deal with the guilt in my life. Paul describes that struggle in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Where he says, those things that I, I know I should do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. He calls himself wretched because of this conflict between the sinful nature of the flesh and the spiritual nature of the mind. So even for Christians who have the Holy Spirit to help strengthen and empower us, that's a difficult thing, let alone someone who is who's not a believer. Just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better. Like, that's a great solution. Another thing that you can do is to repress it. Just deny it. If you feel guilty, just, you know, do something that takes your mind off of it. You know, big bowl of ice cream and a movie, and maybe that will help you to repress your guilt. Deny that you really have anything to feel guilty about. That's what the world would say. Not a very good solution either. There's a book that uh, a guy named Dr. Brand and... Uh, Another man named Philip Yancey wrote together. And this book was written after their involvement in a leper colony in India, spending many, many months there, treating people, uh, observing what was going on, helping them to deal with their leprosy. And the book was entitled The Gift of Pain. Now, the leprosy that they're talking about is a more, I think it's a more of a uh, a modern uh, disease, a little different than the leprosy that's talked about in the Old Testament. But at the heart of this condition that people have, uh, called leprosy, is a loss of pain, where the nerve endings fail to function. And he described that there is one tiny little nerve in your eye, or near your eye, or somewhere having to do with your eye. And if that nerve quits functioning and you're no longer able to feel the sensations of your eye, then you will no longer blink. It was a nerve that we don't even recognize it, but it will trigger when there's a discomfort, maybe your eye's getting a little dry or maybe something is in there, it will trigger your eye to blink. And in lepers who don't have that sensation, when that nerve dies, what happens? They no longer blink. Their eyes dry out. They maybe get an injury that they don't understand because of something getting into their eye, and pretty soon they're blind. They suffer the loss of fingers and toes 
because they've lost the sensation. There's no more nerve endings there. And so maybe uh, wearing extra tight shoes and leaving them on so long that you don't even recognize that your toes are being injured, being worn away. Same thing with your fingers, burning them accidentally and not even realizing that you have burnt your hands. And as a result then, they lose fingers, they lose toes, they lose parts of their face. And these deforming kinds of injuries that we associate with this leprosy are because they have lost the ability to feel pain. And he equates then that to the loss of the ability to feel guilt and what can happen to us, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. We understand the story of King David. David's sin of adultery. David's sin of murder. David went a long time trying to repress that guilt, deny that it existed. But eventually, David came to terms with that, being confronted, which oftentimes has to happen before we'll face our guilt. And in Psalm chapter 51, he writes this amazing confession, cry, prayer to God about what happened. And I want to read it for you. Psalm chapter 51. It is kind of lengthy, so follow along here. David wrote, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized that not only did his guilt, his sin, affect the personal relationships around him, but that ultimately it was a sin against God. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Can you hear the prayer? Can you hear the pain that David is laying before his Lord? Asking him, pleading with him to blot out his sin, his iniquity, to take away this guilt that he has repressed and denied for so long. Guilt should be a forward-moving kind of an emotion that moves us in the direction of this kind of open heart, open-minded, 
surrender to God. Another way in which the world will deal with guilt is by shifting the blame or the responsibility. Somebody else is at fault. My upbringing, my parents, you know, were horrible, and so that's why I'm the way I am. Um, my coworkers don't understand me, and so, you know, that's why I treat them the way I do. We shift the blame. We shift the responsibility to someone else to help deal with the guilt that I feel. A great example of this is found in 1 Samuel 15. Saul is commanded by God to destroy one of Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. Not just to go to battle and to be victorious over the Amalekites, but to absolutely abolish them, destroy them completely, annihilate them, wipe them, purge them from the face of the earth. And we look at that, you know, some, we're, we're kind of taken aback a little bit. That, wow, that's pretty extreme. But that was God's command. Saul was to destroy them, utterly. But he goes into battle against the Amalekites. He, uh, he keeps the king. He, he spares the king, brings him back. Other members, uh, various uh, men are spared. He captures a number of uh, uh, animals, goats, sheep, stock of various kinds, and brings them back with him. And when he is confronted by Samuel, he shifts the blame. Chapter 15, verse 15, Saul answers, it says, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Samuel confronts him again and says, That's not what God wanted you to do. He said that you are to totally and utterly annihilate them. And the Bible says, Women, children, everybody. And Saul says in verse 20, But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He shifts the blame, the responsibility to his soldiers, to the men fighting with him. Refuses to accept it. And as a result, Samuel tells him that you are going to be denied the kingdom from this point on. God takes away his throne. Another way in which we see the world trying to deal with this concept of guilt is probably more insidious, more dangerous than any of the others, and that is where we see a shift in the very standards themselves by which we judge our behavior. Philosophers, thinkers, even theologians going through this process of trying to deny the concept of absolute law, to try to deny the fact that there are commands of God that are not negotiable, that are not relative to a time and to a place and to a situation, to a circumstance. They are commands of God. They are absolutes. And they want to deny that. If I feel guilty about this, breaking this particular law, then what's the solution? Well, just restate it or rephrase it or get rid of it altogether so that I no longer have to feel guilty about that. We've already seen in the book of Romans where it says that it doesn't matter 
There's a law written on your hearts. Your conscience is going to be there regardless of what I say or what I believe about a particular law. And it's amazing that in the midst of that, in our culture, in our time, we still, uh, even though we, we may say there are no absolutes, and we say that, you know, uh, that this really doesn't matter, what happens when we, when we encounter someone uh, who's broken the law and is on trial? It's like, you know, point the finger at them. Boy, somebody throw the book at them. Somebody, they need to pay for that we still recognize and understand that it's there even though we try to dismiss it. One of my favorite um, teachers, thinkers in the Christian realm is a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. How many of you listen to any of his stuff on the internet or radio? Ravi Zacharias is a great apologist for the Word of God, for the church. He's debated uh, numbers of different uh, people over the years, uh, celebrated humanists and other philosophers, and it is a marvel to hear him talk about these, these issues and to lay them out in a way that just seems so clear. And he, he had a series of lessons not too long ago, that he called The Haunting Specter of Guilt. A great series. And in that, he had, he talked about four principles that he believed about guilt. Obviously, understanding that, you know, disavowing guilt or trying to get rid of it in some way is not going to solve the problem. It's going to remain. And that guilt, at the same time, has become one of the the great causes of psychological problems, of neuroses in our society. And so what do we do about that? And he had four things that he had to say about that. The first one, of course, they're worded in the way in which he, he teaches, which is sometimes hard to understand. But the first one is that guilt that is expelled by irreverence is unlivable. Guilt that is expelled. We try to get rid of guilt, we try to throw it out by irreverence. In other words, just rejecting um, a higher authority, rejecting a higher standard, rejecting God's word. It, in a culture, in a society that does that, tries to get rid of guilt in that way, it's unlivable. It is unlivable. As a side note to this series, he talks about um, psychiatrists, um, medical researchers who have toyed with the idea and even experimented and tried to come up with a pill that will alleviate guilt. A medication in the same way that deals with depression or anxiety or any of those other kinds of things that, uh, that we medicate, a pill that will get rid of guilt. I don't think they've had any success, but they're trying it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in the same neighborhood with somebody who uh, goes out and commits whatever crime they want to, and then the next morning takes a pill and eliminates that guilt? How can we live in a society that does not you know, feel bad about bad behavior? 
Guilt that is expelled by irreverence is unlivable. The second principle that he he mentions, guilt smothered by pride is unjustifiable. Guilt that is smothered by pride is unjustifiable. So, you know, we try to uh, say that we're above it or that I'm just, you know, I'm not going to feel that way anymore. There's no way to justify yourself based on that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we have the story of King Uzziah. In the passage, it talks about how King Uzziah was a pretty good king. He tried to follow after God's way. It says he sought God, or excuse me, in verse 4 it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. And it mentions some of the things that he did. Uzziah was a great king. But down in verse 16, it says, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He had the audacity to believe that he could walk into the temple of God and altar, excuse me, and offer incense on the altar. It says Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. <laughs> Takes some courage to follow the king in there and talk to him. He says, they confronted King Uzziah and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary if you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. This is Isaiah who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. He was proud of all of his accomplishments. He believed that he was above the guilt that he was being accused of. And it says, while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And the priest noticed and said, you've got to get out of here. And it's, the Bible tells us that Uzziah dealt with leprosy for the rest of his days. He was too proud. And when he was confronted with his sin and when he was faced with guilt, he just got angry. He said, it doesn't matter. I'm above this. The third thing, as Ravi Zacharias says about guilt, is that guilt that is concealed by fear is unbearable. Guilt that is concealed by fear is unbearable. I was reminded of this story I was reading the other day. A couple of guys uh, were getting ready to go on a mission trip, and they were going to be gone for a few months. And so they, they hired this teenage boy. They said, we need for you to come over, we need for you to mow the yard, you know, water the plants, do various things. Uh, you know, we're going to give you a key to the house, and uh, we want you to take care of our home for the next three months, or however long it was. And so this young kid was pretty responsible, and uh, he comes over and he does that. He has a key, so he'd get into the house and water the plants and do all the various things like that. 
At the end of that time period, they come back from their trip, and uh, they pay the young man, thank him for doing what he did, and, uh, and he goes on his way. Ten years later, they get a knock on the door. It's the same young man. Now he's in his mid to late 20s. He's obviously very anxious, very upset, and they invite him in, and he says, I have got to tell you something. When I was working for you, when I was watching out for your house, I unlocked the door, and I came in, and there was a package of gum on the table. And I took a piece of gum and chewed it up and ate it, or whatever you do with gum, I guess, when you're done with it. And he broke down emotionally in front of them. He said, I took this gum, and I, I knew at the time that I shouldn't, it wasn't mine, and so here I am, I want to ask you for your forgiveness, and I want to make restitution, and he gives them a nickel or a penny or whatever the gum was worth, and says, I want to pay you back. Now we could discuss, and we could talk about, you know, the level of offense that this young man committed, it really wasn't anything. I mean, I'm sure they didn't even notice that the gum was gone. They probably would have said to him anyway that, you know what, we're going to be gone for a few months. Whatever's in the fridge or anything to drink, you know, you can drink what you want. There's food, eat it, whatever. They wouldn't have cared. They wouldn't even have known. But he was bothered about that for 10 years. And that's the point. The point is that he felt guilty about it from the very beginning. And he was afraid to confess it. He was, uh, you know, afraid to, to deal with it. And at the end of that 10 years, it became so unbearable to him, that tiny little sin that doesn't seem anything to us, became so unbearable to him that he had to go back and ask for forgiveness and make restitution. Guilt that is concealed by fear is unbearable. And we, we fear the consequences of our guilt. It's a fearful thing sometimes to confess to those that we need to confess to or to open up to God and say, God, here's, here's who I really am. But that's what has to happen. The fourth thing that Ravi Zacharias says is that only guilt that surrenders to grace is forgivable. The guilt has to be a forward-moving emotion, right? It has to move forward. It has to move us in the direction of surrendering to grace, submitting to God. And that's the reaction we need to have. You know, the feeling of guilt really needs to be there in order for us to be forgiven. We have to come to terms with our sin. There has to be something in our conscience that, that tells us we need forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going back to that longer passage that we read earlier, it says, even, I, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. All those things we talked about earlier, all those ways in which the world deals with death, what do they end up in? They end up in death. But godly sorrow 
leads to repentance. But not only that, notice what he says. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. That's where guilt can lead us to, this godly sorrow that desires all of these better things. Worldly sorrow is a destructive kind of guilt, but godly sorrow produces that repentance that leads to salvation. When we have and we become aware of our guilt, then we can access the grace of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, famous verse, everyone quotes it a lot. Excuse me, there is therefore now no condemnation. Unfortunately, sometimes we stop there. You know, the, hey, there's no condemnation anymore. You know, that uh, everything's free. And we fail to read the rest of the verse that says, who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's when we're truly free. A lot of people think that, you know, well, Christians are all bound up and tied up by this guilt that they experience, you know, and that all these people running around out in the world are carefree and happy and don't have, you know, any, any problems. That's the exact opposite of the way it is. Christians are free. Been freed because of grace. We need, to, we need to think about that in terms of our evangelism. We need to, to preach the whole truth. People deserve all the truth. Just because a dessert says on the label that it's guilt-free doesn't mean that there aren't any calories in it. Okay? Those are still there. And we can try to make everything palatable to the world. We can say that there's no guilt in the church, that kind of thing. You can feel good when you come, but that's not the whole truth. When the Word of God is preached, the Spirit of God is involved, conviction is going to take place. It's not, our, it's not our place as individuals or as a church to make people feel guilty. Our responsibility is to just preach the Word. Our responsibility is to share the good news and conviction will take place because that's God's purview. But it's like Mr. Gruber at the school always used to say to kids, you know, and to counselors and to the administration, uh, when kids aren't doing well in his class, he says, you know, they really need to have the freedom to fail. If we take away people's opportunity to, to fail and then to repent, then in some ways, you know, we're denying them some of that grace. They need to know. Yeah. This is how you deal with guilt. But it's a, it's a cleansing. It's, a, uh, it's an amazing thing to experience. St. Augustine was a great Christian thinker, philosopher, way back in the early centuries, the establishment of the church. And he, uh, it's interesting to read, uh, he wrote a lot of theological things or whatever, but he also wrote some biographical things. And to, to read Augustine's story is really interesting, because when you translate it into English, you know, you can translate it in a very formal way, or you can translate it so it sounds a lot like a, a typical young person of today. The same struggles, the same temptations, the same problems, and Augustine talks about those in his, in his biography. And he talks about dealing with guilt and dealing with that, and one of the things he says, it's one of the great descriptions of, of this human problem, he says, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. 
talking about the you, it's referring to God. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. I think that's a great description of this feeling of guilt, this understanding of guilt. And when he talks about finding rest in God, it goes beyond just the forgiveness that God promises. When we, when we confront our guilt and we say, you know, God, I've done this, and God, I've done that, he does forgive us. But that rest goes beyond just the forgiveness. You can imagine you had a young, starving boy who uh, breaks into your house, steals some of your food so that he can eat. And you feel bad, and so you, so you forgive that young boy, which is great. But what happens when he goes back into the same situation? He's still starving. He's still hungry. And Augustine would say that it's one thing for God to forgive me and then for me to be in the same situation, to be in the same problem, to still have the same desires, the same longings, the same dreams in my life, the same things that I want to accomplish, or whatever those might be, and God not deal with those. But he does. God brings the rest that our restless heart desires. Augustine discovered that it's more than just that forgiveness. It's a healing. You satisfy that longing of the soul. When we talk about guilt, it's part of that, you know, void in our lives, that God-shaped hole in our hearts that we've talked about before. And guilt can lead us, and our understanding and how to respond to that leads us to that point. Our hearts are restless till they find rest in God. I want to finish with one passage of Scripture. You know, we come at the end of every, opportunity, every uh, sermon, every time we meet together, you know, we have an opportunity to, to make decisions. We invite those who have a need in their heart, a need in their life, to come and to pray with someone, to, to hear more about how God's grace can be made of available to them. And so during this decision time, what I want is this passage in Psalm chapter 139. I hope this becomes your prayer. I hope it's a decision that you can make that you want to understand more about what and how God can help you with this. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One thing for us to be forgiven of, of those sins, but to recognize and understand that God can lead us, not in a temporal, worldly kind of way, but lead us in the way everlasting, which is what we need. Let's pray. Our Father, we're asking you this morning to do that for us, to create in us, a heart that desires you to not be uh, hung up and tied down by this guilt, but to openly and, and freely surrender to you so that you can give us that rest that we so dearly need. pray that you'd help us make that choice this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.